but who had drifted far from the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles as they elaborated upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at how false doctrine was happening while the persecutions were going on. Persecutions being for all of those who even claim to be Christian in any sense of the word. But yet false doctrine is not happening in the whole group. It's happening in a good number of that whole group. But there is a group, small group within the bigger group, that is remaining faithful under all odds and against all odds. Not only faithful against the persecutions, but faithful against the false doctrine that we're about to see. And I want to say this right now, and I will repeat this hopefully maybe two or three more times before we're finished. I had to ask myself the question, who am I in a spiritual sense? Just like I asked myself the question about my natural heritage of my dad and mom. You know, I'm a Hudson, born into a Hudson family. That is my stock. I am one of those. In a spiritual sense, I had to ask the same kind of question. Who am I? I think every person ought to stop and ask yourself who you really are in a spiritual sense. What kind of church do we really have? Not only that I need to look at myself and see who I am, and I could tell who I am by what I believe in comparison to what the church that Jesus established in those first churches right there in the Bible believed. Remember, those are our measuring device. We look at ourselves in light of them to see whether we really are one of them or not. And if our doctrinal stance is not the same as the doctrinal stance of the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church in Corinth, we're not one of them. I had to look at to see if I'm one of them. And in doctrine and truth and belief, I can identify with one of them, really, but I am very much one of them. But I also had to, had to look at my heritage, not just where I am today, but my mother and father and grandfather and great and great right on back. Jesus promised, remember, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To him be glory in the church throughout all ages. So I couldn't say I believe what they believe, but I just started out here under the name of Hudson or under some other name. But I'm one of them because Jesus said there's a connection, an unbroken line between the one that I established and the one out here. It's a doctrinal line. So I thought, who are my grandparents? Where is my heritage? I had to take a really good look at that heritage. And to see if indeed what I stand for and who I am today connects not only to my immediate mom and dad in a spiritual sense and grandparents, but all the way back to this church that Jesus established. Is there this really this unbroken line? That's the $24 question. And in looking at that heritage, I had to come to the conclusion there are, I knew biblically, doctrinally, philosophically, prophetically there are because Jesus said there would be, but I had to find them. Where were they? Who were they called? What was, where did they exist at points of time? So in this study, one of the main areas is to try to look at us and find ourselves. So I was talking yesterday about the persecutions and how 
how many begin to recant. I mean, many who call themselves Christians recanted. But it didn't talk much about the doctrinal departure, the doctrinal part. So let's look at the rise of false doctrine. You have your notes. We're going to go through there rather rapidly here today. From, from the time of the first church in Jerusalem to the time of the Council of Nicaea, which was about 300 years, a little, a little uh, right about 300 years later, something went terribly wrong. I ended the session last night just looking at the first church when it started and then churches as a whole 300 years later and ran that comparison and contrast. And there's a, an enormous comparison and contrast. You ought to look at that in your notes if you weren't here before or you're looking for some other location. Something, as I said, went very wrong. Doctrine didn't just shift a little. It radically changed. I mean, major shifts. So let's talk about those shifts for the worse. We will go back to definitions. Remember last evening we talked about the definition of church, what a church is. In the Bible, the word church is used in the concrete sense in every single example, every one of those, to always refer to one local assembly of baptized believers who were covenanted together for the purpose of keeping the ordinances and carrying out the Great Commission. That's the Bible view. But it wasn't too long until that view shifted greatly. In less than two centuries, less than 200 years, really maybe a little more, not much more, they, they, people, church leaders, I'm talking about educated enough to write, read and write preachers and a few others, began to openly write that, that all churches constituted not churches but one church. One church. It was a visible church. Wherever there was a church here, it was connected in a, a very real sense as they saw it to other churches so that you didn't just have a pastor of this church. You have local guys, I called them presbyters, who were pastors, but you had one real overseer, not Jesus Christ, but a head somewhere up there, and he became known ultimately as the Pope. So the definition of church is one thing that changed. Churches were no longer stop from being viewed as local assemblies to one big group, all believers existing on the planet at any time, members of this one central church. Another definition that shifted, it's very important to understand this one, the idea of what is heresy. A heresy is, is generally defined as a view contrary uh, to the position embraced by orthodoxy, particularly in Christianity, orthodox Christianity, which is going to bring up orthodox Christianity, which we'll look at momentarily. What is that? A heretic is thus viewed as someone who, who thinks and holds positions contrary to orthodox theology. So here's orthodoxy. Let's look at that. Orthodox Christianity is thought to be uh, the positions embraced by the most powerful and majority within a group. That's what the idea of orthodoxy came to mean. Or orthodoxy initially in the time of Paul and Peter and John, the Bible, 
particularly the New Testament of the Bible, orthodoxy was viewed as positions held by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Those were the right positions. Those were the orthodox positions. So when you embrace the positions of the Bible, you were considered orthodox. Remember one of the major identifying features of New Testament Christians and churches is they believe the Bible is the Word of God. And the Bible and the Bible alone is their source of authority and practice. So the idea of orthodoxy was in the beginning believing the Bible. What these guys taught, who, who taught? But then in 100, 200 years, I'll say roughly, 200 years, the idea of orthodoxy had shifted to no longer is it what the Bible teaches, it's what the church says the Bible teaches. So the position of this one church now, one universal type thought to be church, that's orthodoxy. And if you don't believe that stance, doesn't matter what you believe the Bible says, but if you don't believe the stance that the church holds, you're a heretic. You may think, well, that's just semantics. It doesn't matter much. It mattered a lot then because if you were a heretic, in many cases you were be the object of being assassinated or killed or tortured in one way or another. All of that persecution that came along, as we're going to see later today, from the church, this universal church, became the Catholic Church, the Roman Church, it's sometimes called. They said what we believe is orthodox. Even if we say we can baptize a baby and make him go to heaven, he doesn't even have to be a believer. That's what's orthodox. If you don't believe that, we kill you. And they weren't bluffing. They killed them. I mean, they killed them. That Roman persecution... 300 years, 250, 300 years, resulted in 3 million deaths. The persecution was followed by the church against those who didn't agree with the church, who weren't orthodox in the church idea, who were heretics according to the church, came to like 50 million. They, in the next 10 uh, centuries, they made what Rome did look kind of weak, like a Sunday school party. I mean, they killed them and killed them and killed them. All they could try their best to eradicate them. What Rome didn't do, they thought we will do. You need to keep these shifting definitions in your mind as we move along. Let's talk about some of the major heresies that came on the scene. Heresies in our, what well, I'm using the word heresy to mean departures from what the Bible taught. Not heresy in the sense it's not what the church taught. Look, even in the right sense of the word. So here are some of those departures from New Testament Christianity that occurred in the next uh, roughly 200 years. One was Jewish legalism. I'll talk a bit about it. The Jewish heresy was legalism. We, we who read the Bible could see that already happening before the Bible was completed. Legalism is the, is the concept that there is something somebody ought to do in order to be saved and that they have to continue to do some things in order to stay saved. Not only is salvation, in, does it involve works, keeping certain Levitical law things, 
But in order to stay saved, if you become saved, you've got to keep doing certain works because if you don't, you will lose your salvation. You can see the departure from eternal security right here, easily. And the Jews were very adamant about that. They said, it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus Christ, if you don't keep the Sabbath day, and you don't keep other legalistic feast days and certain things you ought and ought not to do, then you're not saved. And if you became a believer in Christ and got saved, but you don't keep it up, you're going to lose your salvation. You'll no longer be saved. Judaism taught that salvation comes from keeping thus the Levitical law. And many Jews rejected the Christian concept of grace. They just couldn't buy into that you could be sinners and break these laws and still be saved, that God would be merciful and gracious to anybody. They, could, they just didn't buy that concept. This concept says salvation is not by grace and through faith alone. This legalism I'm talking, this is not, this is legalism in the right sense of the word. We talk about legalistic Christians who if you don't wear your dress long enough, or you don't cut your hair short enough, or you don't watch, if you watch TV, you know, they're again all those things and they're, Sometimes we call people legalists because they get too set on keeping these type things. That's really not what legalism means. That's a new idea about legalism. Legalism means you believe that you got to be doing some works to stay saved. You had to do some works to get saved. The book of Galatians addresses this very issue. A whole book in our Bible, and remember Galatians, unlike Corinthians, is a book written to a number of churches, whereas Corinthians is written to one church. And First and Second Corinthians is two books to the same church, not two books written one to a different church and another. There's just one church in Corinth. And notice it's one church in Corinth. It wasn't part of all the other churches. It's the church of God, which is Corinth, talking to one local assembly, keeping in line, of course, with the definition of church from a biblical standpoint. And so these... Uh, Galatian churches, Paul had gone through there, preached the gospel. Um, that's over in what we would call Turkey today, at least part of it. And he went through there and established churches at Lystra and Derby and some other different places in that region. And they embraced Christ. But then some people from Jerusalem came up there later and said, well, this Jesus is okay, but you've still got to keep the law. You have to not work on a Sabbath, and you have to do this and that. And so they tried to bring them back, and Paul the Apostle was used of God to write a whole book called Galatians in your Bible just to that church or those churches about that particular issue. And by the way, that book of Galatians, like all the books of the Bible, is not just for their admonition, it's for us too. Also, I need to talk about Gnosticism. It was a Gentile thing. It's not Jewish now. We're talking about Gnosticism. It was the most widespread uh, religious heresy of the day. It departed from Christianity a long, long way. And I could spend a whole hour talking just about Gnosticism, but I can't do that. You've got to know. I recommend you do some research if you're not familiar with Gnosticism and really get a grounding on it. Let me give you a little look at it. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnostics claimed to have more knowledge. They, had, they were smarter than everybody else. Some of them would have made good independent Baptists, I think, <laughs> who think they know more than sometimes everybody else. 
uh, it's good to know things. It's not good to be proud about how much you know. And sometimes people who know a lot get real proud of how much they know. And they look down on most people around them and they talk down to most people around them. Just read some of these Calvinistic books and you'll see them talking down to the people who are not. Gnosticism centered around the question of evil and its source. And Gnosticism basically said that all material things are evil. You're sitting in a materialistic pew. It's a real material thing. They say a pew is evil. And so is your body. It's evil. All natural things in matter are bad. And spiritual things are good. That's a basic idea. They allegorized. Allegory. Compared. Compared made this means that. And that means that. Then thus, thus. They allegorized the scriptures. <clears throat> and were really expert at imposing hidden meanings. You read the scriptures and you'll see lots of meanings you don't see at first or lots of ideas and concepts and truth will come out. But they started making things mean what they don't think or what they really don't mean. They imposed ideas in you know, like numerology. I've seen, I have two or three books in my library on biblical numerology. Well, I understand three there's first of the Trinity. I understand seven, the days of creation, it's the word of perfection. Numbers do have meanings. If you're not careful, you can go overboard in that. And you can mean five means 55 and six, one less than six, and that means 566. And you can go off wild on that. You've got to be careful that you don't make the scriptures say more than the scriptures say. Don't read in hidden meanings. Well, I think this is what it must mean. You let the scriptures speak for the scriptures. And if you want to know more about what a scripture means, don't necessarily ask your preacher. Ask some other book in the Bible. The scriptures explain the scripture better than anybody. Maybe your scripture, your preacher can take you to a scripture that will help you understand this one better and see its broader meaning. But be careful. Be very careful. These people allegorized. These Gnostics, they were getting smarter. They could read into the fine print and read the tea leaves better than anybody. And they thought they could and they said so. Gnostics believed that there is a good God. They just didn't believe he's the God of the Bible. He's not Jehovah God. He's just a good God out there. They believed that Christ, uh, they believed in Christ, the Messiah. They didn't believe in Jesus because Jesus had a body, and the body is, is material, and the body is bad. Though therefore, they couldn't believe that Jesus was really the Christ as such. Marcion, just to name one famous name, there are two that I'll mention, Marcion and one other here in a moment. Uh, Marcion was the champion of the Gnostics. He came along, and remember, we're right here at the end of the... In fact, the New Testament wasn't quite finished yet when the Gnostics began to show up. There's some two or three references in the, in the New Testament to these with this special knowledge. You at least thought they had it. And so they, uh, Marcion was the champion of the Gnostics, and Marcion rearranged the scriptures and established a canon to his own liking. Uh, Brother Bob, I'm not sure if you have that in your notes back there, but... Uh, there's one of those graphics that shows the, their 11 books that Marcion had. Maybe we'll get to that a little later. But Marcion came up with his own canon. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself much here and talk about canon, except to you to understand I'm not talking about a 
gun that shoots big balls of lead or, or iron. A cannon is used like a standard, a rule. This book here is the Bible, and it's considered a canon. It's our rule of ma uh, practice, manual. We had the Old Testament, but they didn't yet have the New Testament at this time. The Old Testament was finished. It had been translated into Greek. But there were no 27 books of the New Testament all bound up. These books were being written, and they were written as individual books, mostly on scrolls, parchments, and they were being circulated, many of them, around to church, to church, to church, to be read and understood. But we're blessed to have the 27 books of the New Testament under one cover, along with the Old Testament. So to, a canon is a recognized authority. We recognize the 27 books of the New Testament is our authority. It is our canon. It is our rule of practice, along with the Old Testament. That didn't exist yet at the end of the days of Paul and John and those guys. Martian comes along a little later. He decides, I will establish a canon, the right books. There were bunches of books around. There were 27 books that we have in our Bible, but there were more than 27. There were probably 127 books out there claiming to be true. Martian said, I'm going to tell you which ones are true. These are, these are the canon. So what he did, Martian did, is uh, establish this uh, canon to his own liking. I will tell you, and we'll visit a little later, he just put in the books that had nothing material much to say. He left out uh, anything that was Jewish, and he came up with 11 books of the Bible, is what he called. I mean, these were the canon. Valentius followed him. Valentius, uh, probably the most powerful, at least uh, most uh, influential of all of the Gnostics, uh, he established a school. That's, that's usually when people get serious about what they believe, they establish a school somehow. And that's to our chagrin that we have not done that very well and have not had a good training place. Uh, we should do it in the church, but this guy established a school. A lot of people have done that through the years. Anyway, he established this school in Rome, and as a result, since it's the hub, the center of the Roman Empire, the influence of Gnosticism began to really spread quickly because people are coming in and out of Rome all the time through the military and through other, other ways. So Gnosticism spread, particularly in the West. This man, Valentius, is the author of the infamous and spurious Da Vinci Codes. I, I want to be sure that goes on record. The Da Vinci Codes, because some of you can remember that 20, maybe 25 years ago, it was a big deal. It came out, we found the real scriptures. Jesus had an affair with Mary Magdalene. Uh, you know, he was a pervert. I mean, this, the Da Vinci Code, the Gospel of According to Thomas, we got gospel according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We assume that's all of the gospels, and it is all the true ones. But there were a bunch of other gospels, and one of them is the gospel of Thomas. And it was a Gnostic writing. This guy is a really good. And it's called the Da Vinci Code. And it's supposed to be, we found some stuff that's been hidden from us. These Christians have been hiding it all these years. 
I'm chasing a little rabbit here, but I want you to understand that is Gnosticism. It is a deviant thing. It is not at all close to the truth. And this idea that somehow Jesus Christ, we uncovered him when we found a new revelation called the Gospel of Thomas and a few others as well. It's just hopes. It's just, it's the devil's effort to discredit the Bible and the canon that we have. As corruptive as it was, Gnosticism resulted in three good things. It forced some hand. Sometimes we do better when we have to do better. <laughs> we, we have to define ourselves, who we really are. I mean, and what will make you do that if somebody starts attacking you, you have to say, hey, that's not who I am. This is who I am. That happened as a result of what Marcy and, and uh, Valentius did. Forced Christianity to define itself doctrinally, and it brought Christian schools into being. It brought a Christian school, for example, down at Alexandria in Egypt. It became a real stronghold of uh, Christianity. It drifted in time, but early on it was a good school, and a lot of people got some good training down in Alexandria in Egypt. Also, a third thing that Gnosticism resulted in, it was really beneficial, was it spawned the movement that eventually resulted in, in the true canon, the 27 books of the New Testament we have. It was the pressure of false stuff like Marcion was doing that caused other Christian leaders to say, if these are not the right ones, what are the right ones? So they got serious about establishing a true canon, and I thank God they did because we have it and we use it all the time. Amen. Also, we need to talk about pagan corruptions. These are doctrinal corruptions. Uh, these are things you see still going on today in the name of Christianity. One is called fetishism. These will be focusing up on your screen there. You can see three of them. A fetishism is the placing of great emphasis upon the importance of physical objects, such as a shroud. I imagine everybody here has heard of the Shroud of Turin. Well, I don't know all I know about the Shroud of Turin, but I tell you, it's not in the same league with the Bible. It's just a shroud, and you don't read the tea leaves. You want to know what's right, read the New Testament, the Old Testament. But they got into this fetishism and the bones of say dead saints found in a cave somewhere, or uh, this also places great emphasis and stress on signs, such as the sign of the cross. Sometimes I watch Astros play, or some of those football players, particularly the Astros, and they go, this thing here, you know. And I'm thinking, that's fetishism. All that is, it's just a, a sign. The, the Gnostics, were, and the pagans particularly, were very heavy on these objects of worship and uh, crucifixes and other religious symbols. Also, as a part of pagan corruptions, is this idea of female deities. Female deities. Uh, the Gnostics believed that the goddess Sophia had a miscarriage from the real God, the good God, and that this Sophia, this goddess, who got pregnant by this real good God out there, had this miscarriage, and this miscarriage was named Jehovah. And he's the God of the Old Testament. That's that's superior knowledge. I mean, that's how you can get really high. You know more than all the ordinary people. Kind of like, uh, well, I won't go there. People in Asia Minor, where Paul did much of his missionary work, were called, uh, they believed in a, in a goddess named Cybele. C-Y-B-E-L-E. She was supposed to be the great mother of all gods, ultimately. This is 
you know, Paul worked in Asia Minor, and Asia Minor is not a common term to some people. It should be to all Christians, but Asia Minor is talking about Turkey today, primarily Turkey today. Pagans coming into Christianity were also ripe for a female goddess. I mean, after all, it had Sophia in Gnosticism, and they had Cybele over in the Turkey area, in the Asia Minor area. There were lots of female goddesses down in Egypt because they had hundreds and thousands of gods down there, and many of them were goddesses. And so as a result, um, they were right for that. They come into this Christianity thing, and they thought there got to be a female god here somewhere. So they were just looking for one. And you can see how that, that gravitated toward the worship of Mary. She became the goddess, the female goddess of Christianity. These are corruptions. These are things that are happening. While that persecution is going on, these are ideas that are springing up. Listen, Satan's never one-dimensional. He works on many fronts. He persecutes, but he also corrupts men, men's thinking and women's thinking. Professionalism came in is a false doctrine. Professionalism is the existence of religious uh, hierarchy. You've got professional people in the church, the priests and the bishops, the archbishops and others. This hierarchy of leadership demands are determined who could and who could not be a leader in the church and in the work of the Lord. So the corruption took hold in Christianity and soon there were bishops. By the way, bishop's not a bad name. It's a name used in the Bible, but in the sense that the Catholics, well, not before, even before the Catholics became truly a Catholic church, the idea that a bishop is not just a pastor of one church, he's a pastor of two or three or five or 25 churches. You got bishops over several churches, archbishops over a group of churches. Don't we have an archbishop in in Galveston, over Houston in this area? It's still here today. I mean, these things are not, not uh, haven't gone away. Professionalism, um, sacramentalism, also is something that came on the scene—a falsehood, a drift that came on the scene. Sacramentalism is the view toward church ordinances. The pagan religions all had sacred rites and had sacred rituals. Soon the memorial ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were seen by many as sacred rites with saving power. Not memorial feasts to look back to what Jesus did, but things that had to be done to give salvation. Another uh, strange word, but word that it'd be good for you to hear is sacerdotalism sacerdotalism or sacerdotalism uh, is a big word for, for priestism. This means that only a pre-select class of officers can administer the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. You couldn't, the church doesn't have the authority to authorize somebody to do it like we did to Tim Delaney, that you had to be in the priestly line you have to be one of those to be able to baptize somebody. Church authority is not enough. It has to be performed by the right officer of the church, that is, one of the priests, and somebody in that line. This is in direct contribution to the priesthood of every believer, of course. The priesthood of every believer, and I'll read this from Revelation. Listen, this is chapter 1. I've mentioned this two or three times. Here's the Bible grounds, one at least place, for the priesthood of every believer. Chapter 1 of the Revelation is verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead and the prince of the kings of this earth, unto him that loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then God said amen to what he just said. Amen. The priesthood of every believer. You are, as a believer, a priest. How do you get to the Father? Through the high priest, who is Jesus Christ. Not through some church officer, me or a pastor or some priest in a church of any sort. Also, another departure, doctrinal departure area was the denial of Jesus to be God. This is big. I have to talk about it just at least a little here. Who Christ was continued to be a matter of controversy throughout his entire earthly ministry. You know, the Pharisees were constantly against him and saying, you're not God. In fact, he was crucified because he said he was God, and they considered that blasphemy, and it would be for anybody else. So they crucified him. So the controversy of who Jesus was was going on during his lifetime and has continued since. The heart of this matter is the idea of monotheism. Monotheism. Could the Father be God and Jesus be God and still be only one God, as declared in the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, one L-O-R-D, all caps, one Jehovah, one God. This one God clearly said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20 and verse 3. So there is one God. And he says, you can't have another God. People looked around and says, we got one God, Jehovah. Now here's another God, Jesus Christ. Something bad wrong here, or many begin to think there was. They could not understand this concept of monotheism. Also, in this same mix is the idea of what they call adoptionism, is the belief that Jesus was the adopted, not the natural uh, or the eternal Son of God. He didn't exist forever. He came along later. This is sort of this adoption idea. And then there's this modalism, which is another spin on the, on the idea. Is the, It's the idea that, that in Christ, God the Father simply changed names and, and assumed the name Jesus. It was really God the Father. It was not God the Son. It was God the Father. So he just, you see there, these are efforts to come up with ideas just one God. So it's a lot easier to think, well, he's God, all he did is morphed when he got down here into a different form, but he's the same being. In a sense, that's correct, but it's not altogether correct in that he is not the same. It's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's made very clear throughout the whole scripture, and it's not our intent here. My intent to go through all of that, get that in Sunday school and church, we ought to teach those things better than we do, I'll say, for me and for you and all of us. Get down to these basic things because this is what has ruined people through the centuries. These false doctrines, these concepts that are so near to the truth, but it just makes it a little more believable if we can say, okay, same being, just in a different form down here. Modalism I call a sort of chameleonism. You got a green lizard on a green leaf Jumps onto a brown wall and sharp, promptly turns brown. Same lizard, he just turns colors. This is the idea of modalism about God. He just sort of changed colors around, depending on what he's doing. Then there's another twist in this idea of the deity of Jesus Christ, and that is subordination. And it said that Jesus was deity, but was a subordinate being. 
And he was different, amen, that he was God, but a lesser God, a subordinate God to the real God of the Bible. Somebody's probably been to your door and offered you something called a Watchtower magazine, and this is what they believe right here, that he's not really God, he's a God. Jesus was a God. The biblical view of of God is that he is a triune God. He's a trinity as we call it. The word trinity is not used in the Bible. But the concept is all over the Bible. You can see it here and there in lots of places. One God in three persons. Jesus is always in voluntary submission to the Father. This does not imply that Jesus was in any way inferior or un, unequal to the Father. It's just it's a voluntary arrangement and it's one God in three persons. I'm tempted to post hold, but I must not. Let me talk about how these heresies got worse, strengthened, and they did, believe me. They started out little and they got, like heresies do, bigger and bigger. One of them is the evolution of Christian writings. There were three areas of Christian writing, eras of Christian writing, times of Christian writings. One was in about 90 to about 150 uh, AD. It's called the edification era. And remember, there were learned people who were able to write. It's not as easy as it is for us. They didn't have paper like we have. The best paper they had was papyrus, a little uh, plant that grows along the Nile River that you could beat out and, and crisscross it and make it into a paper form. So it's very, endure, very durable, which is still around today. But they wrote papyrus paper, which as you can see, hard to get. You just couldn't go to Office Depot and buy a ream of papyrus paper. <laughs> you didn't make a lot of mistakes in that stuff. And you either made it on papyrus or you could write on a skin, a, a gazelle skin that had been tanned and cured right, and you'd write on it called a scroll and sheepskins as well. So this is primarily how they did their writing, but there were people who did it. And in this period of time that I'm talking called the edification era of writings, then the emphasis of writing was, was to teach and to enlighten and, and to uh, strengthen and encourage believers to, to show who we are and to encourage people in the faith and to give them great, great uplifts. Um, the writers of this period are called the Apostolic Fathers. You've probably heard of that, the Apostolic Fathers, because they were contemporary with the apostles, or at least came wrong right after the apostles. They were in that. So the Apostolic Fathers, they generally wrote to strengthen and edify. But then that era came and went and moved into what's called an apologetic era, or a period of time. It was from about 140 to 180, about a 40, 50 year period of time. An apology is defined as a statement that defends some idea or primarily a religious concept. When you use apology in that sense, use refers to some religious justification. I'm going to give you, I'm not apologizing for who we are. I'm just telling you, I'm explaining who we are, giving you a definition. So an apologetic Sometimes that's missed by us. I mean, we think apologies, well, they're apologizing for us. No, these were, were apologizing for being Christian. They were just defending Christianity. And I'll tell you, these guys, uh, they went, a bunch of them went way too far. They, they, they said this is who we are and defended Christianity and made arguments for Christianity, which was not real arguments. They were, they were spurious arguments. So these apologies were not necessarily uh, good some of them were, but some of them were not. Furthermore, it is noteworthy that in this era, though there was no canon, all these 27 New Testament books were not collected together under one cover. 
just separate books around it, lots of copies. There, these who, write, who wrote begin to refer to those books. So it's, or when we look back at the validity of the 27 books of the New Testament, not only we find copies of them here and there, and fragments of copies, lots of fragments of copies, but also we know they were there because some of these writers kept mentioning and quoting those books. Lots of them did that. Thousands of them really did that. Thousands of writings. There's another era that followed after that called the polemic area, or era, keep saying area, uh, polemic era, 180 to about 260 or 70 along in there. Webster defines polemic as of having to do with argument or dispute, kind of extension on a, on a apologetic, a little more detail, a more argumentative stance. These writings were, were against those who were believed to be heretics. And boy, this really got out of hand because by this time, you have these bigger churches have gotten powerful and they're ruling over smaller churches. The idea of a universal visible church is coming into the picture and the bigger ones are, are exercising authority over the smaller ones. So you have this evolution of, of uh, churches like the one in Rome and, and Antioch and, and Alexandria. They're they're, they're flexing muscle, and, they, and these leaders are being viewed as bigger than life. And what they say is considered good. I mean, it's, it's next to the apostolic writings, next to Peter, Peter and Paul's writings and New Testament writings. Because remember, they're not out there for these people to read all the time. They're out there in separate form, but you can't read them in church all at once. You don't have them take home like we have a Bible here. Thank God for your Bible. Thank God for it and read it. These didn't have that. So consequently, these powerful leaders who are now far from truth decided that orthodoxy is what the church says things are, what the church says the Bible says, not what the Bible says, but what we, and we're the church leaders, we know best, we're the hierarchy. You peons wouldn't know much. It's us who are the priesthood who really know this stuff. Now we're going to tell you, and believe me, they began to, in this era, write stuff that just uh, is just rotten to the core. We'll look a little more at it later. But just see, the, the, this is how these heresies are going. This is how they're getting stronger and getting more entrenched in the so-called Christian community. Bearing in mind the Christian community, this Christian community is out here going this way. But you still have these who are still hanging on to Jesus Christ, the New Testament. And they're going. we're going to see in a bit, these get stronger over here. They go after these that are over here. Romans going after every, all of them, but now the, this group wants to silence that little small group. It's not too small, don't misunderstand, but it's not as big as, as the other group, not as powerful as the other group, and doesn't have the state behind it like this other one soon got behind it. So as a result, these eras are getting bigger because Brother Hudson said that. Brother Michaelinus said that. You know, it must be true. Don't believe something because I say it. Look in the Bible. Be a Berean. Search the Scriptures. That's where you find what's true. Let the Scriptures be the guide. Thank God for people who study. Thank God for people who write. Thank God for people who preach the truth. And respect your pastor. The Bible teaches that. The Bible says think for yourself. Yes. Go into the book. See if the Bible, if what you're being taught is true. The Bereans search the Scriptures daily. 
to see if the things they were being taught were true. Even when Paul came through Berea, the town where the Bereans were located, they searched the scriptures. What scriptures? They had primarily the Old Testament. And some New Testament books were floating around. And they, when Paul preached, checked even the Apostle Paul. Listen, if you need to check out the Apostle Paul, you ought to check out Brother Darren Simpson. You ought to talk, check out Brother that. Check the book. God forbid that he or me or any preacher ever gets so big and high and mighty that we want to persecute you because you check on us and run you down and ask you to make it hard, life hard on you because you, you want to give me an explanation of that. Explain. Explain what you're doing. Those who wrote, let's talk about, just briefly run through this, who wrote uh, in these eras of writing, in this Edification era, this is first one, remember, first right there at the end of the New Testament, just as it's ending and before, and then right after. One guy who was a pretty decent guy, whose name is Clement, he was a preacher at the church in Rome. It was a big church. It was the one in the headquarters. This guy was born in 30, about the time Christ was being crucified, just right after, really. And then he continued. He didn't die till 100, so he lived 70 years in this particular time. He's, it's believed that that he actually was a contemporary with the Apostle Paul, and they were probably together in Philippi. He wrote a short letter to the church at Corinth around 96, four years before he died, and this is known as First Clement, or, or, or Number One Clement, sometimes people call it that. The letter was sweet. It was kind of letter to this, uh, to this, uh, this uh, church in, in Corinth, and it, can, it said this, it can, or I have these, this quote, it can hardly be denied that the document reveals the sense of a certain superiority over all ordinary congregations. I mean, this is, this is before the end of the first century. And here's a guy that's pretty well trusted and is pretty straight on a lot of things. But he began to indicate that bigger churches have a little more power and pull and clout than smaller churches. Is that not alive and well today? Gosh, if you can get a church that's really big, and rent out a whole coliseum here, an old football, basketball stadium, even the media will think you're the great guy in town. Because it's big and glamorous. Not because of what it teaches, because it's big and glamorous. If you can have two or three campuses around, and you be the pastor of three or four, not churches, but campuses, you're even, it's pretty, pretty potent stuff. I mean, you're a big guy. This is not brand new. This is what was going on right here at the first uh, right out of the box. So, I mean, to end of the, for the first century, before 100 is here, uh, this guy is advocating that. Roman Catholics consider Clement to be the fourth pope. They have no real grounds for that, but they've decided that he was. And so they concur from the letter that Paul was the first pope, uh, Peter was the first pope, and that he died in Rome. That idea that Peter was the first pope and he died in Rome is from the letter of first Clement, or Clement, this guy. Uh, Clement wrote to the church in Corinth. So you see how some of these things come around and it's, it's, it's a seized upon. I talk, uh, t need to talk to you a little bit about this man, man Ignatius, uh, 30 to 107. He's in that same era. He's also one of these who is, uh, is doing edification stuff, but bringing in some of this falsehood all along. Ignatius is believed to have been a disciple of John and a colleague of Polycarp, whom I mentioned just last night. He wrote 15 letters, at least we know of, that bear his name. <clears throat> there are some examples of profound departures from truth in the letters of Ignatius. I mean, departure. These are error gets going. 
sounds good at first, but it's not good. People buy it because they're not thinking for themselves. It's the Pied Piper mentality. I'm going to follow him because I believe in him. You believe in God. Don't believe in him. Follow him. Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. If I don't follow Christ, you don't need to follow me. You won't know if he's following Christ or not unless you're looking in the book. You've got to study show yourself proved unto God. How, here are some examples of these departures. The concept of a clergy separate from and in some spiritual sense elevated above and superior to the people. See, they're getting bigger, bigger churches. This guy with lots of power now. He's got a big congregation, got a lot of money, got a lot of people, got a lot of influence. And no, he's saying, well, I think the clergy, the clergy being the preachers and the deacons, you know, the people that run the church, they're in a different league. He's paving the way for this, uh, this uh, episcopate, this uh, priesthood. He also advanced the idea of a bishop outside of a local church with authority over the pastor of a church. In a local church, Jesus is the head. The person that he has put in authority is the pastor. And the pastor is responsible in an exodus to God for how the deacons behave and how the teachers behave and how the music runs and how the teaching goes and how all of He's the guy that's going to give an account of himself to God. We know that from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and, uh, and 11 along 17. All in, They're going to give an account, the pastor. But here's a guy saying, no, the pastor himself in a church, he's kind of in a higher league than the ordinary people. And now we have somebody outside the church, a pastor over the pastors, a bishopric, pastorate idea of foreign to the Bible. The concept also that clergy is the necessary medium of access to the people for God. That is, if you won't get to God, you're not a priest, you don't come to God directly, you have to have a clergyman. You have to have a priest, a, somebody in, in the church, and you go through them. And now we're getting down to laying the groundwork for auricular confession. That is, you go to the priest, sit in there for a little while, tell him all your sins, and let him intercede with you, take it to God. You see how this just, this don't just, like, ah, it started one day. Because somebody said, it gradually creeps. It's the way falsehood does. It gradually creeps into the picture. The concept, This man also really... Uh, promoted the concept that the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper are indeed the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and that they become a part of your salvation. He didn't define it as later guys did, but he found it enough to say, if you're going to have the blood of Christ, it's got to be literal. So when you drink in that cup, you may pour wine in that cup, but it'll turn into the blood of Christ as it goes into you and becomes the actual flesh. The Lord, uh, the unleavened bread does, and his body, and then the wine is his, his blood. This is, this is where it started. And remember, we're not out of the first century. There were other documents. Uh, uh, that needs to be understood, that, that it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, Acts, and all those books that were around. Remember, they didn't have it under a canon. So there were other books. Bunches of them. Let me mention a couple that are more notable. One is called the Didache. It was written in 120. This document is, is called the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles. However, 
this document was not written by the 12 apostles. Not at all. The author is not known. The Didache talks about how baptism and the Lord's Supper were conducted at that time, and it suggests that these ordinances have nothing to do with salvation. I mean, here's a book. It's not a scripture book, but it still contends that, look, that's not the way you baptism and their memorial feast, not salvation feast. There's another book called the Epistle of Barnabas. Epistle of Barnabas. This writing is infected with Gnostic tendencies and is antagonistic toward the Jews. I mean, it's very anti-Jewish. But it's one of those that went around in the name of God and it's self-scripture. And it's hard for the ordinary man sometimes to know which is right and which is wrong. However, I'll talk more about that. The Shepherd of Hermes is another book that floated around at those, uh, in those days. It was written in 140. And this is a collection of visions and mandates and parables which supposedly uh, a divine shepherd uh, gave to a man named Hermes. So the Shepherd of Hermes, this divine shepherd, or, or divine uh, shepherd gave this man these revelations. So it's a new book of revelations. A new, so again, it's a spurious. We call spurious meaning it's not a true, it's not a good, solid book. These all were going around during that first era of edification. But then from about 117 to about the next 120 years, as what's called the apologetic area that I mentioned, and I mentioned two people that were in that era, particularly one is called Aristides, 117 to 137, he didn't live, as you can see, a very long life. But he compared Christianity to heathenism and found it infinitely superior. It is a good writing. I've had a chance to look at this, not in as much detail as I hope to in some day in the future. One of the things, you can't just go to Amazon and buy this kind of stuff real easy. <laughs> it's hard to get. But it's a good, this guy looked at heathenism and all this other stuff and looked at Christianity. He said Christianity is light years above. I mean, he didn't use that terminology, but it's way above. His work is known as Atristide's uh, Apology. And then another fella that I really have high stakes in, although he made some mistakes, but he had, in general, was a good guy, 100 to 175 uh, A.D. His name was Justin Martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R. Um, one day, uh, he lived in the area of uh, Israel along the coast, uh, Caesarea Maritime, out there on the coast up above Tel Aviv. If you've made a trip to Israel or are going to make a trip to Israel, you want to go there for sure. Anyway, this guy was in that particular area and he walked, Sandy kind of out there, he walked. And one day while he's walking, he encountered a simple uh, peasant man who was willing to speak up. Even though he was poor and had no clout, he began to talk to this learned Justin Martyr. He began to confront him with some of the fallacies that were going on, some of the departures from truth and weaknesses in, in, in this uh, Justin Martyr's belief. Justin Martyr couldn't believe that an ordinary guy who was not learned would stand up and even confront him and challenge him on some things. That ought to tell you something, folks. Yeah. It ought to tell you, don't be ashamed of your stance. You don't have to be mean and ugly about it. Just tell the truth about how you got saved. That's a good place to start. Tell who Jesus is. Why you came to him. Why you embraced him. Basically what this fellow did. Uh, Trippo. His name was Trippo. Tell 
the Justin martyrs in your life, who you are and why you believe what you believe. That's what this guy did. And this old guy, Justin Martyr, was stunned and he went then to the scriptures. He could read the Old Testament scriptures and he could read the New Testament books that were coming on the line at the time and they were already online by this time actually. And he began to look at these scriptures and you know what he did? He got saved. Amen. Hallelujah. And he wrote a book, our little, it's really not a book, it's a sort of more of a, of a pamphlet. And it's called Diatribe, uh, or Dialogue with Trippo. Dialogue with Trippo. And in this apology, Justin Martyr explained how he got saved. And that became a good document that circulated around the Romans and explained how, who Christians are, how we got saved. This is who we really are. Then I'll talk just a little about this polemic area because here's where things really went south. I mean, these guys were big church guys for the most part. They thought they were big. They already had embraced these uh, change of definitions to heresy and orthodoxy and all that stuff. And they began to really, really promote it and write it. One of them was named Arrhenius, 130-202. More than any other, Arrhenius laid the groundwork for the Catholic Church. He is sort of the base foundation for it. He changed the definition of orthodoxy from what the scriptures say to what he says the church says it is. He's the guy that's really the engineer mostly of that. He elevated tradition, church tradition, above scripture. He said, yeah, we need scripture, but this tradition is more important than scripture, what the church says and has done, its relics, its rites, its uh, rituals. He's the first one to refer to the Catholic church with a capital C, capital C. So uh, he's... He's uh, the guy that goes through that. He fostered the concept of a church hierarchy, the dominance of the priesthood. Uh, he additionally changed the word uh, bishop as used in the Bible, referring to a pastor, to a group of, uh, a person over a group of pastors, a bigger person, bigger, bigger role than that. He taught that the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper are the body and blood of Jesus Christ and receiving them strengthens the soul and body and is the germ of the resurrection of the body unto eternal life. In other words, he's getting into sacramentalism here. Got to do the sacraments. Keep the, the seven sacraments. And in the mind of Arrhenius, baptism and regeneration were ultimately connected. You couldn't get saved if you didn't get baptized. He connected those two. I'll mention Tertullian for just a moment. Spider Tertullian's strong support of many truths, he added to corruptions. He's the first one who openly expressed and directly asserted sacerdotal or sacerdotal claims on behalf of the Christian ministry. And uh, he also elevated the priesthood, did more to do that. He assumed, uh, assumed a, a ministerial hierarchy, and, and it's, unwittingly he granted, uh, greatly influenced the idea of orthodoxy to be found outside the Scripture. The orthodox is not just what the Bible says, it's outside the Scripture. You can find it in other places, and the church declares that it's orthodox. Uh, he leaned toward the notion of a magical operation of the baptismal waters, basically he began to promote baptismal regeneration. You got to baptize people, and then you get down eventually to the babies, and you know why they got the babies thing. And it wasn't long till people, and already coming on here, they thought that there are elect and non-elect, you know, and if you're one of the elect, you're a baby. We don't know which babies are elect and non-elect. So if you have to baptize people in order to ensure they get to heaven, we've got to baptize all the babies to make sure all the elect babies die and go to heaven. Boy, it's crazy how people reason. It's crazy how these ideas come about. But if, you've got to, if you believe this, you've got to justify it with this. You've got to prop it up over here. So it's kind of like a story, a story I've told before of a guy 
that was talking to a friend, and he was telling him about a bull that chased him and almost ran him down. He said, I was out in this field, and he said, there was no place to go. There were no trees out there, there was, and I was a long way from the fence, and this big bull came after me, and he said, man, I just knew he was going to gore me. He said, well, obviously, the guy said, he obviously didn't. You're here. He said, what did you do? He said, I climbed a tree. I thought you said there wasn't a tree. He said, there got to be a tree in a case like that. Sometimes when you invent a doctrine, you've got to invent something else to prop up that doctrine. You just, you just make it up, and that makes it okay. And you can convince those Pied Piper people that just follow along because you've got a big name, and you call yourself a preacher, and you can get away with it. That's exactly what happened right here in this particular time. Another guy named Cyprian who followed, uh, gosh, he, he, he used the concept of Catholic Church with a capital C. Catholic means universal. But he put a capital C referring to the one in Rome. That's where he's the guy that did that. Uh, he's a strong elevator of, of Christian positions to orthodoxy. All who opposed orthodoxy were defined by him as heretics. The exaltation of the church hierarchy and priesthood he pushed and made stronger. Apostolic succession of bishops in Rome from Peter is his idea. The primacy of the church of Rome over all the other churches, it's bigger, it's better, it's the one that has the final say. It can rule all the churches, it's the head church. And the preacher of that church is the head of all the preachers. So you can just see how this is where it's going. And the concept of salvation coming through the church is all a part of Cyprian's idea in this time for our break. So I want to just give you about, about five or six minutes, I think maybe ten here. We'll come right back in. We'll get right to the next session. All right, take a break.